The following program is brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers. Restoration Radio. Um, I am your host, Stephen Heiner, with my co-host, Nicholas Wandsbutter. We are um, having a discussion today on the impending possible society uh, reconciliation, Society of St. Pius X's reconciliation with modernist Rome. And we have as our guest today, uh, Father Anthony Cicada, who is joining us from St. Gertrude the Great in Cincinnati. Welcome, Father. Well, nice to be here. Um, Father was ordained by none other than Archbishop Lefebvre himself in 1977, and as many of us do, um, when we find tradition, had to find tradition through various different seminaries and and paths, but finally ended up at a cone and was with the Society for some time, and he was able to give us some historical perspective that those of us who perhaps weren't even born when Father was ordained um, really simply don't have. Um, but before we get to all that, Father, I was noticing my friend Scott Richard today had posted uh, a bunch of different names for today's uh, Sunday, and I, I, I guess I just wasn't aware of the, the, the multiplicity of names. So uh, today is referred to as Low Sunday, Quasimodo Sunday, Dominica and Albis, Thomas Sunday, and for those who are so inclined, Divine Mercy Sunday. Um, I thought you might... Uh, kind of start us off just by commenting a little bit on on a few of those names and and give us a bit of an education. Well, the most interesting in the list, actually one which I've never heard until you mentioned it, is uh, Thomas Sunday. But of course it is the uh, Sunday that has the gospel with the faith of St. Thomas in it. And the faith is very much the theme of the uh, scripture readings today. Uh, the faith of St. Thomas, you know, blessed uh, are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Um, I think in our own situation in the church, when there's so much that is uh, disturbing and unsettling to us, that the example of our Lord's disciples is is a good one, is a consoling one. They were uh, slow to believe, slow to believe in, in the resurrection, and uh, St. Gregory says it wasn't uh, so much uh, their weakness as our future strength, because mm-hmm. when we look at them, uh, we can derive a lot of consolation uh, in these difficult times in the church. So I think that uh, Thomas Sunday is a good one to go with. Hmm. How about the, those who are inclined towards the, uh, the hunchback explanation, Quasimodo Sunday? Uh <laughs> I think that's a comical explanation, but actually Quasimodo is the uh, first word of the introit for today's Mass, like uh, newborn babes. And uh, that was chosen uh, precisely because this was the uh, Sunday, uh, last Sunday, in which the new converts to the uh, faith in ancient Christian times uh, wore their white garments. And uh, so you had readings and, and uh, that were directed toward them. Um, how about Low Sunday? Uh, 
uh, low Sunday, we always joke that it's actually uh, uh, refers to the uh, Sunday where it's low attendance. <laughs> 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 or, or maybe, or maybe how the clergy clergy are feeling that they want to kind of lie low after a full week of ceremony after the long holy week, precisely. Yeah, <laughs> that might be it. So um, and then I, I guess that refers to Dominica and Albis then as well for yes, the, uh, the the white garments of the uh, white garments of the uh, newly baptized. Hmm. Well, thank you, Father, for that. Um, I think it's a great way to begin. Um, Today we're talking about the present by looking back at the past, um, and of course we're looking at today's Sunday by by learning something about our history. Um, Nicholas, Nicholas, and I, um, and we're going to speak about this a little later, have believed for a long time, probably the last two years, that there is going to be a sellout, quote unquote sellout, is how society um, hardliners would call it. Uh, a reconciliation is how maybe the softliners would call it. Mm-hmm. And um, we've had various reasons for. For, for collecting this data, but there's a much longer view here. And um, we talked a little little bit about it off the air before we came on, mm-hmm. that you think that this actually goes all the way back uh, to the foundings of the society. You think this isn't a question of 1988 or 2007, uh, but really it's a question of 1970. Um, and I, th- I thought that was kind of fascinating. I thought we should start with that. Sure. Well, the Archbishop, Archbishop Lefebvre, founded the Society of St. Pius X in 1970, and he did that with the um, approval of the local diocesan bishop. Initially, I think the idea of the society was to work within the structure of the Vatican II Church to be more conservative and to promote um, uh, priestly piety and devotion. Uh, I think the idea very much in those days was that Vatican II was basically orthodox, that Pius, or rather Paul VI was weak, but uh, but liberal, that the, the new mass was problematic, uh, surely, and there were liberals in the church who had to be combated. But in any event, from that as the... Um, uh, as word of Archbishop Lefebvre's work and, and seminary uh, spread, then there began to be more controversy over it. And uh, within the society, uh, the archbishop and the clergy started to re-examine their different positions. And this led to controversy. Uh, and in 1974, or thereabouts, uh, we had, I guess, the first... Uh, bout of negotiation between the Vatican and the uh, St. Pius X Society, and the society was suppressed, and Paul VI became the enemy. But uh, nevertheless, this, this idea to negotiate and to try to arrive at some uh, arrangement with uh, the Vatican continued. So there was this, this uh, ferment. And um, in 76, uh, after the ordinations, uh, His Excellency was suspended by Paul VI. That led to more controversy, more heated statements from uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, but still there was this negotiation this going back and forth. Uh, and one of the reasons, I think, for this is that fundamentally, uh, the Archbishop and the head, heads of the society, those who were in the society, never really resolved the question of is Vatican II, uh, is the, the Novus Ordo, the whole post-Vatican II structure, not just the Mass, is it Catholic or is it not Catholic? Uh, 
So there was this this going back and forth between uh, denouncing it and trying to become a part of it through negotiation. Well, I think it's interesting, Father. You were there, you know, when he said, you know, uh, the Novus Ordo is a bastard mass, and so the the hardliners would say, well, you know, he very clearly said that the Novus Ordo was evil. You know, how would you respond to that? Well, the, um, uh, in those uh, those days, that was one of the things he, he said. But uh, on the other side, uh, the archbishop would also uh, make statements which would make you think that the new uh, the new religion somehow was Catholic. So there was this this going back and forth, and you could almost uh, quote. Um, a hardline Archbishop Lefebvre and a softline Archbishop Lefebvre. And you could uh, come up with an equal number of quotes on either side. So there's this indecision that uh, affected the mentality of the society and led to this constant drama of negotiation. And what was that like? In the, you were in the seminary at the time. You know, what, what, well, what was the, how was that atmosphere like? You were, you were there when the first negotiations were kind of actually happening. You never knew what was going to happen. Uh, because some of the things the Archbishop would say in his conferences would lead you to think that he was going to cut a deal with the Vatican, and other things he would say would lead you to think that, uh, no, he was um, uh, going to fight them and didn't consider them Catholic at all. So uh, it it was a seesaw going back and forth in the seminary. You had this, this uh, feeling very much that you didn't know where things were going to end. So, so uh Father, would it be safe to say there was also uh, some of the secrecy that a lot of people have complained of that they don't like about the current negotiations, that no one knew what was going on because no one was saying what was going on? Uh, yeah, you really didn't um, uh, You really didn't hear what was going on. Um, uh, eventually, uh, uh, after the fact, uh, you would hear something from uh, the Archbishop or, or something else on uh, the grapevine. But you never really knew what was going on, and you never really had a sense where it was going to go. That was he going to surrender to them, or uh, was he going to take a hard line? You know, we had we had hopes, of course, in the seventies that, in the late seventies, that he was going to take a hard line because he had said many things in uh, uh, that direction. Well, but Father, that was because you were part of the evil hardline group. You have to keep that. I guess so. You know. (laughs) Um, I I, I think it was interesting. You mentioned that they hadn't really ever resolved the difference, the question about you know what is the status of Vatican II, what is the status of the Novus Ordo, and you felt that they didn't do that then. I've got two questions there. Why do you think that was, and do you think that is still the status quo today that they have not resolved the status of Vatican II and then the status of the Novus Ordo? Uh, is certainly in no uh, firm way. Uh, the reason it wasn't resolved, I think, is because the Archbishop himself was of two minds. Uh, you had one half of the Archbishop that was very much um, the prophet, the great enemy, and the, the uh, great hater of modernism. And on the other hand, you had the Archbishop Lefebvre, who was also the diplomat, the member of the Vatican Diplomatic Corps. And so uh, you've got these two things that that went back and forth. The anti-modernist archbishop would um, satisfy the hardliners, and the diplomat would uh, satisfy the softliners. 
But ultimately, in the society, because he went back and forth on uh, so many different issues, the only ones who really survived were what you could call the Lefebvre Lighters, those who didn't see any contradiction in what he said from one day to another, and who would follow him and follow the society wherever it went. And that's not really an unfair comment. I think that's a uh, an adequate representation, an exact representation of what it felt like to be in that organization. No, and I, I don't think that's there, and I'm sure I'm sure Nicholas can attest to it because he's in a completely different district of the society as well, and um, and he's uh, he's attended their masses, and um, there is something which is particular to the Society of Saint Pius X within the traditionalist movement, which is a sort of adherence um, to particular uh, orders, or, or we we sort of outsource our thinking to the priests, so. The idea is, well, if this is a position of the society, that's also concomitant with the position of the church. Um, and this, this, of course, can be a bit dangerous, especially when um, they're even willing to admit that they're in an irregular position with the church. Uh, yeah, I think I would uh, agree with uh, Stephen's uh, assessment in terms of what, I, what I've observed as well. But just going back to Archbishop Lefebvre, in, uh, in fairness to, to him, the way I see it, and perhaps whether uh, you'll agree or disagree with me, but the, the situation was much more in flux and it was really of a uh, emergency situation, trying to put out fires at that point and maybe not having the uh, luxury of uh, sitting back and really thinking out what was going on. And then Archbishop Faith dies, and no one's ever taken the time. Like everything's kind of fossilized or crystallized at the death of Archbishop Lefebvre, and as things have maybe calmed down a bit more, no one's uh, been willing to, uh, to to do that hard thinking. Uh, yes, and uh, because they did see him very much as the great prophet, and the the question in uh, the minds of people now is uh, who are fighting over his legacy is what would Archbishop Lefebvre do? You know, and that seems to be the question. Not so much is the Novus Ordo Catholic, and what do we do to resolve all of these difficult uh, ecclesiolo- ecclesiological problems uh, that we're faced with as a result of Vatican II? So it, it, it um, uh, so you, you have, as a result of that, you have uh, the idea of fidelity to this organization sticking to the position of this organization, whatever it may be, because it was founded by Archbishop Lefebvre. And I think, Father, I, some people may think that our theme music today, uh, you know, was your theme song, actually, because I know that <laughs> uh, you're seen as the great Satan uh, in places yes, outside that's right. the And I think that part of that context, though, is I've heard you, and I've heard Bishop Dolan, and I've heard Bishop Sanborn speak of the Archbishop's piety that they had a chance to witness that um, I've heard you speak about his warmth and his charity. So uh, a lot of times I think people just like to sort of um, uh, shoehorn this in and say, well, you know, Father Chikata doesn't like Archbishop Lefebvre, and and so this is why he he just goes on the attack. And they're unable to parse the difference between uh, taking a a real hard critical look, uh, how we could say a short critical study, of Mm -hmm. uh, the Archbishop's positions, while recognizing that he, as a man, and as a man of the Church, um, did many good things. And was a very virtuous man indeed, and very edifying. Um, But, you know, you have to make 
that distinction between uh, the man and uh, many of the ideas. What the his organization ended up with uh, as a result of this is the uh, position toward the uh, Roman pontiff that I call the recognize and resist position. That you can recognize someone as the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth, but uh, you can resist his teaching, you can resist his laws, you can resist his commands. And the society has perpetuated that because of the um, essential incoherence of its uh, fundamental position, its inability to say whether or not uh, Vatican II, that whole system, is Catholic or not. So on one hand, they say the, the diplomat side says that, well, uh, you know, we want to uh, recognize Paul VI and his successors as the, the Roman pontiff. But the resist side, side says that, well, uh, we will ignore anything that we don't think is in conformity with Catholic teaching. So you end up with, with uh, that bifurcation. Well, and Father, uh, you know, as I've told you before, I, I, I definitely want to uh, engage you at some point about Sedificantism. Uh, quite a few of our listeners are, are definitely not Sedificantists, and in fact, perhaps because of the society's very strong anti-Sedificantist stance, have never really cold-bloodedly looked at the issues. And I definitely want to get into that at a future date. I think I want to... Uh, at the moment, sort of zoom in on both of those terms, recognizing and resisting, both of these being, as you say, of the two minds, Catholics want to do both of these things. Catholic, all Catholics want to recognize someone as Pope. This is, this is an inherent, built-in, something that was built into you when you were growing up. It was something that was built into me. It was built into um, Nicholas. And then you have the resisting part, which we don't like error. Catholics don't like error. So both of these things pull, and I think perhaps that's what makes the society's incoherence in this matter coherent, because they're getting pulled in two different... I mean, it's an emotional pull. It's not, it's not grounded um, in, in thought in that way, but I, I can see what the attraction is, perhaps. Do you think that's fair? Oh, you can definitely see the attraction of it. Um, if you were raised, as, as I was, in the pre-Vatican II Church, uh, the idea is, is that recognizing the Pope was everything. and he, But you would not think of resisting him. You submitted to what the Pope says because that's what the, um, that's what the Catholic was supposed to do. That was your duty uh, before God and under pain of sin. So the, the resistance part of this idea is something that was uh, added on later to um, accommodate this um, to, to give an explanation for the fact, well, how could the Pope or how could the Church uh, do all of these things that seem to contradict uh, Catholic discipline, Catholic doctrine, Catholic worship from the past? Mm. So that was something that was added on to it. Well, and I think well, that the I, society had this um, pull, and it's been called, you call this, and I don't think that this, this term is perhaps known generally, broadly speaking, so I'll give you some chance to contextualize it. But you refer to the bear hug. Um, I think this was in 1982, 83, 84. I, I 78, think actually. 78, oh, well, even. Well, uh, pretty soon, yeah. 78, so this began the modern period, you could say the post-Paul VI period of negotiations. And, and why don't you take us from there, Father? Well, what happened is, is uh, Paul VI um, 
uh, died in 78, and you had the, um, uh, for a short time, you had John Paul I, and then eventually John Paul II. And Archbishop Lefebvre uh, saw, I guess, the election of John Paul II, uh, the signals he was getting from the Vatican at that point as an opening to go down and to try to uh, start up the idea of the legitima- uh, legitimization of the society and its recognition. And he uh, went to the Vatican, and he actually had a meeting with John Paul II, at the end of which uh, John Paul II gave him a, a, a big Slavic bear hug to show him his, uh, show the Archbishop his affection. Mm. So, uh, from that point on, that negoti- that uh, initiated a new period of, of negotiation and uh, dealing with between um, the Vatican and the Society of Saint Pius X and the Archbishop. So that is the the sort of the, the later, the modern period of, of negotiation that began then. And there's a there's a parallel here. Um, in that the th- Nicholas and I have observed things um, that have been happening within the society uh, in the last couple years as sort of preparing the ground, uh, getting the groundwork ready for the society to be reintegrated into the Nova Sordo structure. Mm-hmm. And I, if you go back and read, um, I think particularly the letter of the nine, mm-hmm. you, had, you all had been observing from 1978 to about 1982 these sorts of trends, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the letter of the nine because some of this affects some of what we were talking about, what we what we see as signs happening today. One mm-hmm. of them is one of the most controversial ones is that you in the Northeast District, which I guess we would characterize as the hardline district of the United States, mm-hmm. the time did not want to use priests ordained um, in the Novus Ordo sacramental in the That's sorry right. in, the Nova, in the Novus Ordo ritual. Um, and that this was, there were two minds in the society about this. But, uh, yes. but, this, this, mm-hmm. but uh, you already at this time, uh, way back um, in the 70s, early 80s, did not want to work with Novus Ordo priests. And how was your position seen? Were you, were you a minority position in the society? Uh, well, it's uh, a, a little bit difficult to say, but actually uh, I got the idea that the new rite of priestly ordination uh, was doubtful from Archbishop Lefebvre. Uh, I went mm-hmm. to see him in, in 1975 or 76, and I asked him about buddies of mine from the seminary in um, the Middle West where I studied. If they came to work with the society, what would be their status? And he said, well, their ordinations are doubtful because the form has changed. So I initially got that idea from him, I suppose, in a hardline period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, he uh, initiated these... Um, negotiations beginning in the late 70s. And um, obviously, uh, if you're going to negotiate a uh, deal with the Vatican, you have to say that, well, the the post-Vatican II rights are all valid. So uh, as these negotiations progressed, uh, I imagine that it became a very uncomfortable thought for the Archbishop that here are these people in the United States who are members of the society who didn't think that the new rights of ordination were valid. So that was a that was an issue between ourselves and the Archbishop, um, as was the use of uh, uh, at that point in connection with his uh, negotiations with the Vatican. Uh, he proposed to them that the society, if it 
were to be reincorporated uh, into the post-Vatican II Church would use the Missal of 1962, mm. which we didn't use because there was a um, uh, certain liberty in the society uh, as to what you could use for, for uh, which Missal and breviary you could use. So this Boy, was that's, uh, a, that's our, a whole other show, also, Father. <laughs> on the the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so so but these issues came up, um, uh, became issues for us in the United States because there are negotiations going on actually between the Archbishop and uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who was the head of the CDF at that point. Mm. And these, uh, I, I know that the missile was a um, uh, the use of what uh, particular missile was a sticking point with them. That's really interesting. So he, he we could come back to also conceded that. Um, well, speaking of concessions, in 1984 you got the indult, or as as it has been popularly called, the insult. The insult, okay. Um, <laughs> wasn't that wasn't that a big huge step? Wasn't that a big step? Uh, well, uh, they were trying to do something. Uh, obviously, uh, the Vatican was trying to do something. Uh, to uh, placate those who had ended up in the uh, traditionalist movement, so that uh, you know that was one step, and I suppose seen as it wasn't much, but it was seen as a uh, concession, at least somewhat of a concession to uh, traditionalists and to Archbishop Lefevre. And I mean, um, I guess he didn't consider it very much, but um, uh, the uh, you know it made people aware at least of the issue of the mass. Now, the, the interesting, uh, I, I found your comments, Father, about the uh, uh, validity of the uh, right of uh, Episcopal consecration interesting because I came to tradition around in 2004, 2005, and uh, when I first uh, started attending the society, I was under the impression that it was the majority opinion, it was certainly the only opinion that was presented to me is that they were questionably questionable uh, of, in terms of validity. And it was only then after uh, uh, Benedict XVI was elected Pope, then all of a sudden things uh, things changed, and that's when we started seeing articles defending the uh, um, legitimacy of the uh, new right of Episcopal consecration. So is that well, perhaps again... Uh, Nicholas, that actually about. started... Um, uh, the the move toward recognizing that actually started in the 80s when we were still in the society, um, somewhat underground, because uh, in the course of um, uh, our discussions with Archbishop Lefevre, it uh, was then Father Sanborn, uh, the Archbishop said that, well, someone in uh, Germany had, had done a study on the uh, new rite of Episcopal consecration, and uh, come to the conclusion that, well, it was really just the Eastern Rite, um, Rite of Episcopal Consecration, so therefore it would be valid. So even, uh, that was Father Schmidtberger, and, and even at that point, it seemed that they were starting to line up, uh, at least among uh, those who are at the head of the society, the idea that um, the new rite of Episcopal consecration is, was one that could be accepted, could be valid. Archbishop Lefebvre also told me uh, in 1975 or 76, that the new rite of Episcopal consecration was invalid. He said that very clearly. Mm -hmm. Right, and it seemed to me, uh, 
I'm just thinking of Bishop Lazo is the only example I can think of of a uh, bishop ordained under the new right that became friendly with tradition. And as far as I know, he was never uh, asked or allowed to do uh, ordinations or confirmations at society chapels. Well, Nicholas, it wasn't for lack of asking. I think um, Father Father Chikana had a chance to find out that he asked to do ordinations, and uh, and Bishop Tissier replied in the negative, uh, mostly because yes. he thought the new rite of ascetical consecration was invalid, but he responded very cryptically with the fact that the confirmations that Bishop Lazo had done were fine because the Church supplies jurisdiction in that case. Um, well, and is, yes. <laughs> Although priests can do confirmations, can't they? Or is that just a... Well, they're very specific. Well, I'll, you know, I'm not going to speak. Father can speak to that. Well, that's that's a whole show in itself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'll, ta- we'll take a pass on that one today. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I- I'm just noticing the time. I think we were saying we were going to open up for phone calls at about the halfway point, so we're closing in on that. We um, are. And uh, um, I'm going to also... For those who are technologically inclined, um, we're going to be taking questions on Twitter. So um, if you go to at True Restoration, which is our Twitter handle, you can simply reply uh, and put questions in there, and you can skip hanging out in uh, the phone queue um, on the line. But if you do want to call in, uh, the telephone number is 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949 949- Two seven two nine four one seven. For those of you who are calling from overseas, you're going to need to add a country code of one for a United States number um, when you call in, and um, we'll we'll get to your calls if and when they come in. Um, don't know. One of the things that um, if uh, I'd like to point out, Stephen, is is the whole this whole drama of negotiation has been going on for uh, you know since uh, virtually since 1973, 1974. And it's it's um, uh, almost one could say what the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth is famous for uh, that uh, the the endless negotiations. Um, uh, one of uh, a colleague said recently that just as the Jesuits would take a fourth vow to obey the Pope, then in the Society you would take a fourth vow to negotiate with the Pope. <laughs> uh, that's a little bit waggish, but uh, the idea. Uh, what I, I would urge on listeners is not to uh, become too fascinated by this idea of the endless negotiation. It's almost like a, a trap that draws you into this this um, uh, big drama of, uh, you know, uh, will we make a deal, won't we make a deal? And um, you end up in sort of a, a state of suspended animation being fascinated by this when there are other issues that are far um, uh, far more serious, far graver, that as a, a Catholic in, in good conscience we have to resolve. Sure. Uh, well, and I mean, I, I think part of, part of the issue, too, is that um, nego- you can put negotiations in quotes and you can put Rome in quotes. You know, it's so nebulous. What are the negotiations, and who is Rome? You know, who who is it that they're they're, they're talking to? Yeah, you and uh, know what these terms if, mean, if you substitute uh, the Roman Pontiff for Rome, uh, then the theological difficulties uh, become a little bit more apparent. That um, you know we are uh, negotiating with the Roman Pontiff, and we want to uh, achieve recognition uh, that we deserve from the Roman Pontiff. And 
because the whole idea for a Catholic is that you don't negotiate with the Pope, that you're subject to the Roman Pontiff. Mm. And I'm not just saying that as something against the Society of St. Pius X. I'm saying that because that's what is a, a, a pre-Vatican II Catholic. Uh, I was trained to believe, and that I do believe, that if someone is the Pope, you submit to him. It's, it's uh, necessary for your salvation. Mm. Um, no. I, I noticed we had a call, but the uh, caller seems to have left, so... Uh... Well, uh, if anyone calls, we're still a bit new to this, so uh, we'll try to get you right away. But if we're I don't, I, I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't hang up accidentally on the caller. But if 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 you uh, if you do feel uh, inclined to call back, we will we will definitely take your call, Father. We uh, we were last at 1984. Um, mm-hmm. That uh, was before 1988, which was when the big the big deal happened, uh, and that's when uh, that that. Uh, Excommunication, which had not been seen probably since the times of Joan of Arc, um, mm-hmm. was wielded um, for uh, the benefit of a bewildered uh, world press uh, who had, you know, read about excommunications in books, uh, and it was being used on uh, Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, tell us a little bit about 1988, and, and you were out of the society for some some years at this point. What was the vantage point like? What what, what was the reflection? Well, it, it was interesting to watch it, of course, from the outside to see the dynamics of of uh, what was going on. That uh, the two tracks, the archbishop making uh, hardline statements and then engaging in behind the scenes diplomatic negotiation and uh, going back and forth, and his um, the, the point that uh, what he wanted to get from the Vatican at that point was the approval for consecrating a bishop uh, because of his, his advanced age. And so he alternated um, hot and cold, as it were, hard line and soft line in his, um, uh, in his public statements. And in, with the idea, I guess, of, of, of pressuring the Vatican to give him uh, permission. At some point, he actually uh, made a number of statements that uh, were v- virtually sadovacantism. And he got a, a very bad reaction from some people and, and then modified those. So there's this big drama going on in 87 and 88. The archbishop in, in uh, May of uh, 88 uh, did in fact finally uh, agree on a negotiated formula with Cardinal Ratzinger. And that was the famous uh, protocol of May 5th, 1988, which would have given the uh, society the status that it wanted, which would have conceded uh, uh, the right or the, the uh, privilege of consecrating a bishop, etc. And the archbishop signed that on May 5th, and the next day, then, he repudiated it, and he repudiated his signature. Mm. One can only, uh, you know, imagine the frustration of the Vatican uh, in thinking that they'd resolve this, and then uh, the next day the archbishop turning around and saying, no, that, that uh, you know, we're not going to go along with this after all. So that, of course, led into a uh, led into a, a new period, I suppose, the uh, sort of a desert as as regards negotiations go. But then you did have the Episcopal consecrations and the, the threat uh, the threat of excommunication, which uh, they 
finally carried out, and then the formation of other organizations such as the Fraternity of St. Peter, organizations which accepted the terms of the protocol that the Archbishop signed and which re- received uh, official recognition from the Vatican. Right, uh, I'm just going to jump in here because we've got, uh, I think it's the same caller we had before, uh, I'm, so I'm going to let him in to ask his question. This is uh, Chad calling from uh, the United States. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Chad. Yes, hi. Yep, I know it's probably early in the discussion, but I wanted to ask why the preamble was kept under wraps, why it was kept so secret, and what do we know actually now about it that the general public doesn't know, and um, what in it is, uh, what was the hang-up with the, why did they have to go uh, back and forth again with uh, clarification, and, and then I'll hang up and just listen on the radio, but thank you for taking my call. Chad, thanks for calling. I I think those are all really good questions, and they're wrapped into something. If you can be patient for a few minutes, I think we will get um, to talking about that. I promise we'll do that. Okay, very good. I I plan on listening for the entirety, so thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Chad. Um, Yes, Father Isla, we've also got a question from Twitter on what is the difference between the resistance of St. Athanasius and the Society of St. Pius X. I, I don't know if we can answer that question quickly, but I'll, I'll put well, it we, we that. can sure take a shot at it. Um, the uh, idea, uh, what the uh, society feels that it is able to do is to uh, resist the uh, doctrines of uh, what is in effect the magisterium and the disciplines of the universal church that... Um, uh, were uh, promulgated by someone they recognize as the Roman Pontiff, and uh, so you, you the the uh, difficulty there is not uh, simply uh, combating uh, combating error where you find it on the part of individuals, but is the uh, refusal to submit to the teaching authority of what one recognizes as the magisterium. Because if if you recognize the legitimacy of the Roman Pontiff and the bishops in communion with him, then you have to uh, submit to their discipline and submit to their magisterium, and uh, that is the uh, that is essentially the uh, the difference. I suppose one could write a book about it. <laughs> Indeed. Um, we've got another question on Twitter here, um, which says, "Will a deal with Rome cause a major split within the society?" Um, in this, in the in the spirit of Chad's question, I think Father, what we'll do is we'll pause here at 1988 and try and circle back. Um, I think we'll jump forward then uh, to the second reason for the theme music, other than announcing your your evil appearance, was the uh, the possible Anschluss, uh, the society being absorbed within the uh, the Novus Ordo structure. Um, and the reasons why uh, Nicholas and I uh, have thought for a long time that there would be uh, a reconciliation or sellout, however, whatever mm-hmm. position you take, uh, part of that has been um, what we've heard anecdotally from friends, uh, preaching from the pulpit, which seemed to flavor or smack of uh, some sort of accommodationist stance. Mm-hmm. But uh, more importantly, in the Angelus magazine, the official uh, English-speaking magazine of the Society of St. Pius X, and in the SSPX dot org American district newsletters adrift to the left, not only a, uh, a need to have a sort of apologizing 
uh, tendency about uh, Bishop Williamson's comments a couple years ago, but also mm-hmm. to um, praise, go out of their way to praise Novus Ordo, quote-unquote, conservative bishops whenever possible. Uh, that's part of why we, we've been thinking there's, a, there's going to be a deal. Um, Nicholas, am I missing any ideas? Well, I think uh, one could also look to the uh, general change in tone of the Superior General's letters to uh, friends and benefactors. Um, I'm trying to remember, it wasn't that long ago there was one that made mention of uh, Benedict XVI as being uh, some sort of friend to tradition. I, unfortunately, I didn't mm-hmm. think to look look up my copy of, uh, of that letter, but I remember thinking it was quite extraordinary to read of this particular pope being referred to in that way. Um, yeah, yeah, the Angelus the various uh, uh, districts, uh, web pages, it all seems to be a, mm-hmm. a, a general uh, trend in that direction. The uh, Canadian district newsletter hasn't really spoken about it too much. but. Mm-hmm. And, Father, you, you take the position that there's not going to be a deal. And, uh, of course, you know, young guns like Nicholas and myself, you know, we, we've, we've been in the movement together. Uh, you've been in the movement twice as long as both of us put together. So we tend well, to look to, to, to your sort of perspective. You think there's not going to be a deal. <laughs> well, um, uh, I think that given the history of uh, SSPX's negotiations and their mentality, uh, I think that there's not going to be a deal uh, because um, there's just too much of the history of this recognize and resist, and they could continue doing what they're doing now indefinitely. Uh, they have uh, trained several generations of people in the idea that you're going to recognize someone as the Roman pontiff, but you don't have to obey him. So uh, the uh, the weight, as it were, of of uh, history and of their mentality keeps them uh, from from making this move because it's a risky move. Um, the it is. Uh, I compare this this idea to um, the question of a cow. That um, it's great if you can get free milk from the cow, but if you have to buy the cow and then feed it, uh, that presents a lot of practical problems. So in this case, um, you could really uh, get a lot of of, of uh, cream, as it were, from the idea, free cream from the idea that well, we recognize the pope, but we resist him, but. Once you sign uh, an accord with uh, the Vatican, then you buy the cow, and you have to feed the cow, and you have to clean out the stables, and the stables could be end up being very messy indeed. Uh, the difficulty being that if you recognize someone as the Pope, you have to obey him, and your organization then is, is uh, under him, and you have to accept that. So if they sign, uh, you would get a situation where uh, any sort of uh, resistance toward a modernism that they might have now will gradually be uh, undermined and will be neutered. Well, because they'll have to uh, they'll have to cooperate. Now, to that point, Father Bishop Valet himself, I, I'm trying to remember the sermon. Um, it was it was either it was within the last 60 days but he gave a uh 
sermon on the fact that, you know, being independent has created bad habits uh, and that this is something they don't even notice in themselves anymore, that how independent they are. And so there's sort of a preparation in the ground, like, well, you know, we've been independent too long, we need to not be independent, um, as, as a sort of as a sort of preparation for buying the cow. And along with that, there also seems to be a really ramping up of condemning independent priests lately. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, when I go back to when I first came to society, that was right around the time when... Uh, the book, uh, Priest Wears Thy Mask, Mask Wears Thy Priest, was released. Mm-hmm. These are all independent priests that are being promoted as individuals to work with the society, whereas I've noticed in the last year, year and a half, there's been a number of articles online and in Angelus saying, well, we shouldn't have anything to do with independent priests, that they don't have any faculties, only society priests do because they get mm-hmm. it through the mm-hmm. society, which is being presented as a... Uh, religious order, which again is, could probably be a topic of a whole other uh, radio show, whether that's the case or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- th- that seems to be another, I guess, why I'm with Stephen, thinking it seems like they're ramping up for something. Well, if, as I say, you know, I'm not infallible and I'm not a prophet on uh, something like this, but the the difficulties that uh, they would experience. Um, I think rather soon would um, be fairly dramatic uh, as regards any sort of witness at all against uh, modernism because um, Bishop Fillet would get what I uh, I call, and I would put in capital letters if I were writing, the phone call from the cardinal. And uh, the episode of a phone call from the cardinal would be a case like this where, say, um, Say one of the uh, local Pius X priests down in in uh, Kentucky gets a little too enthusiastic about condemning modernism or something that's going on in the Diocese of Covington or Cincinnati. So the local ordinary uh, calls the apostolic delegate, who calls the cardinal in Rome, who calls Fillet, Bishop Fillet, and tells him that you know, come on, we we recognize you people, you're supposed to go along with us and, and be sort of uh, peaceable, and we know you have your own opinions, but you really can't say things like this about the Bishop of Covington and the Archbishop of Cincinnati and about his, his practices, so, you know, come on, play along with us. So that's the sort of pressure that um, the society would be under at that point, and Bishop Fillet's choice would be to silence uh, the priest, to tell him to play along, or to, you know, send him off to India or wherever they they uh, send their priests, or to um, decide to back him up. And you see in the, the the effects, the dynamics of ecclesiastical politics of how that worked in the case of the Fraternity of Saint Peter. Uh, my classmate at Acone, Father Joseph Bisi, ended up as head of the Fraternity of St. Peter. And there was a, a dispute between some priests in France who actually wanted to say the new Mass. And Father Bisi was very much against the idea. Eventually this was uh, appealed to Rome, and eventually Father Bisi uh, was removed or had to resign. Well, of course, because so, they see it as the ordinary form. I mean, how sure. can you refuse to say the ordinary form, Father? Yeah, precisely. You know, and, and uh, but that's that's how it works. And the idea that 
uh, you see on these different websites that the Society of St. Pius X is going to be some sort of new army that's going to go in and convert the modernists, is not, um, that's not going to happen. They're going to have to play along there to be self-censoring. And the uh, the uh, uh, clergy will have to uh, play ball with this, or uh, they'll have to go. And, and I think, Father, in that exposition there, you've really hit on a number of the reasons why those called hardliners within the society don't want there to be an agreement or would call a reconciliation a sellout, because uh, sure. the is concomitant with that, that you would have to, the society would have to go along. And, and that would certainly seem to be the, uh, my own view is the evidence of what's happened with all the groups that have signed on the dotted line. Uh, Fraternity St. Peter you mentioned, but the Institute de Bon Pasteur, um, you know, at Campos, that, that seems to be the, uh, the uh, fruits of uh, these agreements with all of them. There yeah, you be become part of. Uh, remember that that part of Vatican II is the idea of um, uh, what's called reconciled diversity in belief. That you know you have all these different means of salvation used by the Holy Ghost, and dogma uh, dogmas evolve, and um, what was good at one point is is not necessarily true today. People have different points of view, etc. And to be a part of that. Uh, to to be uh, part of the Vatican II Church, you implicitly recognize that general operating principle of reconciled diversity. You have to go along with it, you know. There's, there's a number of threads I want to go on, Father. I've um, I've been having trouble trying to uh, pull uh, one of. Our, we have a caller from Missouri, and I've been having a little bit of difficulty pulling a screen here. So I'm just going to take a bit of a risk and uh, and and put that listener on here. Um, and when I when I do uh, put that person on, I would just have uh, state your name and um, and ask Father your question. Uh, you are on. Hi, Father. My name is Eric Jones, and I'm Hi, just Eric. calling to uh, play the the Advocatus Diaboli a little bit. I have a question. Or maybe um, the Advocatus Angeli, if you read the Angelus. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> You were saying that the SSPX's normative state is uh, negotiating with Rome. Can we yeah. not say that this is at least somewhat necessary, given their circumstances? I mean, if they recognize Benedict XVI as being the Pope, do they not have an obligation of sorts to, to at least speak to the man? And, Father, I'm going to add on to Eric's okay. question, because this was a, a, a same question from Ancila Domini on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Some tried to ju justify negotiation based on St. Paul's resisting Peter to the face. What is Father's response? Okay, good. Well, let's let's try to get both of those. Uh, a very good question. First of all, the idea is if you recognize someone as the Roman Pontiff, you have to submit to him. Um, it's not a question of uh, negotiating for your um, uh, for the status of your organization or anything like that. The only proper attitude of a Catholic toward the Roman Pontiff is uh, submission. And um, I, that's something that's, that seems to be very clear. And it's only because of the way the dynamic of the society has evolved over the years with negotiation that people have come to consider that as an uh, acceptable 
um, uh, stand to take vis-a-vis the um, to take vis-a-vis the Roman Pontiff. The uh, question of, of uh, Peter and Paul and, and uh, resistance and so on is uh, uh, that's uh, something that is um, uh, you know rather uh, frequently invoked. But what the society is in effect doing is not doing that. Um, uh, the society is resisting the uh, uh, universal disciplinary laws that the Roman Pontiff has laid down. And those the Catholic is, is bound to submit. And they are also uh, refusing, uh, or resisting, uh, as it were, the uh, teaching authority of what the Roman Pontiff says is a universal general council. And uh, you cannot do that. So it's a different, uh, it's a different type of uh, resistance, a different type of uh, resistance entirely. Does that answer your question, Eric? Uh, it, it does in a sense, although I think the the SSPX would probably dispute Father's take on the uh, on the authority of Vatican II. Boy, that's a whole other show, too, isn't it? Exactly. No, I'm sure they would. I'm sure they would, and it's a uh, you know that that is another show, if not a, uh, another two shows. But the very interesting thing, um, Eric, is that the um, uh, in the uh, what we could call conservative Novus Ordo circles, non-traditionalist circles, uh, there is this this unease about uh, Vatican II and its its status and what we're to think about it, uh, and the reason there's that unease is that in these circles now, people are realizing that it's impossible to say logically that there is some sort of a continuity so how do they explain the um, apparent contradiction between Vatican II and previous teaching so that's a very very hot uh, topic and uh, it's, it's, it's one that's being uh, very widely uh, discussed now but those who are in the conservative circles in what we could call the, the modern church like um, uh, Monsignor they realize that they realize the the, the difficulty uh, that there is saying that Vatican II was not a um, uh, was not a real general council was not a, a real ecumenical council, mm. and at the well, same time trying to reconcile the, the its teaching to previous teaching. So there's a lot of talk about that. And well, there's a whole cottage industry watch. behind this idea of rupture theology, rupture liturgy, all of that. It's a it's a whole new uh, area of study now. Um, Nicholas, I think you had another you had another caller you were going to bring on. Oh, I think I just lost Nicholas. Okay, sorry for that. The uh, both Nicholas and I are new at uh, operating a talk show, and so we sometimes will have some difficulties. So my apologies to our listeners. Um, and while we're waiting for our callers to come back online, um, I think we'll pick up that point. Going back to Chad's question about the preamble, Thomas Richardson uh, had gone to us on Twitter. Will there be a major split um, as a result of this? And um, 
and why did they keep the preamble secret for so long? And I find this fascinating. There was actually a priest, uh, and Chiesa had done a piece on this, and then I, a priest had brought up his name's John Lamont, or it might be Father Lamont, that it was very odd to keep the uh, negotiations secret, uh, that one can understand if you're kind of trying to put together a canonical status for your uh, priestly organization, it makes all the sense in the world to have that be something uh, secret, um, but that it doesn't make any sense for these doctrinal issues which have been have had books, mountains of books written about since 1962, why would we keep that secret? That doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Um, so and Father and I had a... I think, Father, you're back online now? Uh, no, this is uh, Juan Sputter back online. Okay, Nicholas is back online at least. I got, I got booted as well. I don't know what happened. <laughs> well, we we might just have a temperamental program today. Um, well, I, I think uh, Maximilian Cross listening to our show and uh, found a way to try to... Uh, we, 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 we got the bike <laughs> from Germany, yes. Uh, very possible. Um, uh but the idea of, you know, why why do we keep, and I think, yes, we do, I think we have Father back now. Father, are you back on? Uh, yes, indeed. We, uh, Nicholas was, was, was Father Williamson work, Bishop Williamson working <laughs> that switchboard? <laughs> we, 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 uh, uh, Nicholas was just opining that we might have gotten hit from uh, Maximilian Craw, uh, who's uh, the Society of St. Pius and Legal Counsel. Uh, you know, we're talking too much, you having too know. much intelligent and calm discussion about this topic uh, to be tolerated. <laughs> Um, okay, so we we were, we were lost at what point? Um, well, we're uh, I, I I sort of just vamped uh, for a little while while uh, you and Nicholas were uh, getting back on the air with us, but I um, started talking about why uh, the the John Lamont piece about why is it that we would keep the the doctrinal negotiation secret, but the uh, the the idea that why would we embargo the doctrinal discussions? This is something that is, matters for the whole church. It doesn't just matter for the Society of St. Pius X. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very odd idea that only the society matters. Uh, mm-hmm. No, these, these sorts of things, they've been written about for years. They should be discussed openly. Uh, it's actually the other thing that should be kept secret. Whatever the society's status is, that's their business. Um, and uh, that goes to another question. Uh, from And I love these trad handles. Someone named Louis Pasteur. Oh, okay. How could the personal prelature affect the status of the SSPX should they follow through with their reconciliation? And, of course, the personal prelature referring to the Opus Dei 1983 Code of Canon Law status, uh, that you have an organization. This is a novelty in the church, um, which is sort of ironic, of course, using a sort of novelty in church government to uh, bring the society back in. Uh, how would you answer Mr. Pasteur or Dr. Pasteur's question, I suppose? Uh, well, the, um, the status of the um, Opus Dei, the personal prelature, as I understand it in the new code of canon law, is um, uh, one where to operate, actually to operate in a diocese, uh, you have to have uh, the permission of the diocesan bishop. And there are a number of dioceses where the um, Opus Dei uh, cannot operate because the bishop won't let them in. So that's one uh, difficulty of the personal prelature uh, issue. Obviously, uh, if they go personal prelature route, then uh, you have to be, again, quite, quite careful uh, to maintain uh, your uh, good relations with the diocesan bishop. So, naturally, any sort of real anti-modernism there is going to be neutered, effectively. Uh, the other 
thing that's been talked about is uh, what's called an ordinariate. And the ordinariate uh, is uh, a type of ecclesiastical creature that is something like what was given to the Anglicans who um, uh, decided to uh, uh, join up. Uh, and an ordinariate has its own ordinary, and they have a little more freedom to operate in terms of different territories, so they wouldn't necessarily have to have the approval of uh, the diocesan bishop to work in a particular diocese. But still, uh, even in a case like that, don't kid yourself that you're not going to be able to uh, get away with what the society was getting away with uh, before in terms of uh, conducting any sort of anti-modernist campaigns, that necessarily everything is going to end up being muted. And that idea is going to be passed along very quickly to priests and, and future priests. And um, I, I think that's I think that's a great answer, um, Father. I'm I'm going to let Nicholas introduce our next two callers. But before that, I just want to remind um, listeners that you're listening to Restoration Radio. Our topic today is um, what what will happen with the Society of Saint Pius X's po- possible deal with modernist Rome. Um, you can call in at nine four nine two seven two. 9417, and you can also reach us much faster on Twitter. If you go to at True Restoration, send us your questions, and we will try to get to them as quickly as possible, and I'll hand over to Nicholas. Right. Uh, our next caller that we're going to uh, put through here is Henry calling from Georgia. I understand he has a question about for uh, Father Chicago what he thinks might happen if there isn't a deal. Uh, but, Henry, I'll let you ask your full question. Okay. Thank Hi, you. Henry. Hello, Father. Um well, thank you for your book, Work of Human Hands, first of all. I really appreciate it. It's a great book. Oh, uh, my publisher reminded me to plug it here. But, uh, <laughs> we'll, give you, we'll give you plug time later, Father. <laughs> Is your name John Lynch? <laughs> but, and, thank you very much. Okay. Please please go ahead okay. with your question. <laughs> okay, well, the, the question is, now, if the Society and the Vatican, if they do not come to any accommodation but just continue the endless negotiations, it, it seems that there's no end in sight, do you see anything that would indicate that a schism might happen within the society? Um, you keep reading, well, you keep... I think that um, based on my experience and, and looking at the organization from the inside and from the outside, that um, I really don't think that uh, many people uh, within the society will leave it over the fa- over the the. the the uh, fact that they did not arrive at some sort of uh, understanding with the Vatican. Because these people have been conditioned to this idea that it's perfectly acceptable to be in this this third world where we recognize the Pope and then we resist him. So I don't think that there will be any who will leave. It's not as a dramatic thing as the excommunications in 88. So I think that things will... Uh, simply, or things would simply putter along if if no one arrived at at uh, a resolution this time around. Is that the lady or the or the clergy itself that's within the society? Do you feel uh, the clergy might look at it again and say, "Look, you know, we cannot continue to be like we are." We, or is it just the lady you're referring to? Well, I think that the, there there might be a very few among the clergy who would say that. But, you know, based on, on uh, past experience, I don't think that there would be uh, really that many because it's, it's uh, a, um, 
uh, precisely because of the formation and their mentality. Um, and then among the laity, uh, I don't think that one way or another the laity would be affected if um, the society did not cut a deal, because many people are there uh, simply because it has a Latin mass. And the whole question of the Pope and papal authority, well, um, it doesn't really cross their minds as much. You know, and I, I don't say that to uh, disparage the society's lady. It's just sort of a fact. It's kind of how things work. Okay. Well, well Father, you would you admit that you have some you have some like that in your own congregation as well sometimes. Well, I mean, you, you have that everywhere, that you have simple people who don't, really understand too much of the big ecclesiastical questions and um, uh, they're there for Catholic teaching in the Latin Mass and they can't really uh, figure other things out. It's too much for them. So, uh, you know, that, that's everywhere. So I guess, Henry, the answer to your question from Father is uh, no, he doesn't think there'll be a schism, but I think it's also because no, he doesn't think there'll be a deal. And I think we'll, we'll come back and revisit that. I think Nicholas has another caller to introduce. Okay. Right, yeah. And that, and that, I think... Just before I go to the next caller, because uh, my time is running short here, I'm going to have to get out of here soon. But I think the real question is, will there be a schism within the society if there is a deal? But I don't know if we have time to get into that now. But I'll go to Michael uh, calling in from Hawaii. I think he has a question regarding uh, mass attendance. Okay. So, uh, Hello, Michael. Michael. How are you doing? Good morning, Father. Good morning from Hawaii. Father, I, I have, it's probably not, I don't know if it's so much of a question, it's a comment. Father, I'm 72 years old, I was raised in the Catholic Church, and I, under, I always understood, under pain of mortal sin, my requirement to attend Mass on Sundays. Mm-hmm. From, from, this, from this position, in fact, we have Masses out here once a month, the society priests come out here. Mm-hmm. But now, under, under this pain of mortal sin, attending Mass on Sunday, would I get the okay from the... Uh, the Pope to not attend Novus Ordo Mass on Sunday, and I, I just like your uh, comment on that, Father. Well, uh, you know, I don't know if um, uh, I don't know what his his thinking on that particular idea would be, but um, it would work this way generally for your Sunday obligation that. Um, the obligation to assistant mass on a Sunday was what's called an ecclesiastical law, and if there is um, uh, some sort of an impossibility to uh, fulfill the ecclesiastical law for whatever reason, for sickness or for a mass not being available, you're excused from uh, um, that obligation as long as that uh, condition continues. Now, uh, someone who is part of the hierarchy of the new church would tell you that, well, yes, you have to go to the Novus Ordo because it's the Mass approved by the Pope. And, um, uh, you know, you would be obliged when uh, there's no traditional Mass available for you. But uh, my answer is no, that, uh, you know, you're uh, not because the Novus Ordo is not a real Mass. So. Well, I, I think my question is, though, I mean, if, in fact, if I were to recognize... Benedict the Sixteenth as being the Pope, mm-hmm. wouldn't that come? Wouldn't that come to a conclusion that I obviously have to attend Novus Ordo Mass on on Sunday if, in fact, there is no other Mass? Well, I mean, yeah, that, I mean, I mean, without well, can I, if I take the liberty of just resisting and saying, well, I don't go along with this. That doesn't. Yeah, because he's I mean, the to me, Pope, this puts us in a very bad position as far as this whole thing with set of goes. I guess. 
Yeah. So, uh, which again is, as we would say, is another show. <laughs> right. Okay. So, you talk about that, but no, you're you're right. It's entirely logical that if you recognize him as the Roman Pontiff, uh, your obligation is to go to the Roman Pontiff's Mass. I would. You know that so, he approves, so. and he approves that as the ordinary form. Therefore, you're obliged to go to it. But if once you start saying that, well. Um, uh, you know the, that um, uh, you make all sorts of different distinctions about that to uh, get around the fact that um, you know you recognize him as the Pope. Then uh, that's where the problems start. Does that answer your question, Michael? Yes, it did. Thank you, thank you, Father. All right, God bless you. Bless you. Thank you. All all the way from Hawaii, Father. You've got uh, you've got quite a listening base here. Uh, um, I, I think Do we have any other outstanding questions that were asked earlier that uh, we did not? I feel like we, we we've been getting to some of those, and um, we're gonna. I'm gonna let people know we're we've, we've got about 20 minutes left in the show, so I'm going to shut down the phone lines here. We're gonna have take uh, Nicholas is uh, chatting with the gentleman for our last caller um, for today, but um, as far as some of the questions, Father, I think we've been answering them through some of this discussion. So we talked about uh, resistance. Uh, Eric had come in, and, and we had a Twitter question about that. Will there be a split within the society? We've had a couple callers uh, talk about that, and I think... Um, well, we were talking about the preamble in Lamont, weren't we? Yes, yes. Well, and that yeah. was that was when we, we we kind of lost everybody for, for a few moments. So we got the spike from Europe, um, <laughs> from our Internet line. So, yes. Um, the the idea was how is it possible that the preamble, you know, this idea of all these doctrinal issues that everyone has been talking about for 40 years, why is that kept secret, as opposed to the negotiations for the society's own uh, position, uh, their own legal standing? That makes all the sense in the world to be kept private. But why keep private doctrinal discussions? You know, Vatican II was open to Protestants and Muslims, and everyone was welcome. We can talk about these ideas, but no, no, 40 years later, we have to keep everything in secret and some locked doors in Rome. doesn't make any sense. I thought that was a very interesting point. Um, perhaps you mentioned to the readers that uh, it was an um, Australian theologian named Father Lamont who wrote an article about that, yes. uh, saying that, that precisely... Uh, because these issues are so important, uh, they actually should be uh, discussed uh, publicly, and the doctrinal uh, preamble is something that should be discussed uh, uh, publicly, not simply behind closed doors. And, uh, you know, that is uh, really an excellent point. Why should should things have to uh, unwind in uh, this particular fashion? And that naturally, of course, then makes everyone suspicious of the uh, suspicious of the whole process that is being conducted in this way. That and it I seems think that both sides have something to hide. Absolutely. That both the Vatican has uh, <clears throat> something to hide in, in terms of, of uh, people that and objections that they don't want to get from uh, your real old-time Vatican II Stalinists, we could call them, or maybe Trotskyites. And then the, uh, from the point of view of, of uh, the society as well, uh, the question of, of perhaps alienating uh, or, or scaring hardliners as to what they would actually be discussing. Well, and I think that uh, that point's well taken, Father, and, and perhaps to further contextualize Chad's question, part of that secrecy as well is the way that the society is run. It's a very top-down, controlled organization, and Bishop Fillet has mandated that no priests are to have blogs uh, without his approval. 
and uh, no no websites. There aren't there aren't to be independent letters published without his approval. And so it's a very um, sort of state-run organization, and that's why it also has to be secret as well because it keeps that uh, control within. And you know, people think that these are ugly things to say. It's not. It's, I just think it's true. Whether people want it to be ugly, there are, there are reasons to run an organization like that. I don't know that it's the best way to run a, run a religious congregation within the Catholic Church, but mm-hmm. uh, the facts are the facts. It is true well, that you he would, has banned uh, other all sorts of other things. I think the other interesting thing is uh, it would not be so uh, if Bishop Fillet were to sign an agreement with the uh, Vatican because uh, then the society would have to regularize all the statutes in terms of the 1983 Code of Canon Law. And it's very, the society is very much run as a top-down organization uh, now. And uh, that would not really uh, continue if Bishop Fillet were to sign an agreement because they would have to conform with the the general practices of the... um, uh, 1983 Code of Canon Law, and those w- would allow priests much more latitude uh, in what they can say and what they can write about, etc., than uh, the society would like to uh, allow to its priests now. And the superiors of the society would be responsible to the members of the society, uh, because the society would have to conform to the uh, general rules about general chapters and elections and, and uh, the appointment of officials, etc. And all of that would have to be reviewed and, and uh, approved by the Vatican. So there would be a, a radical change in the mode of operation of the society uh, in terms of its internal laws as well. So you're saying a reconciliation would, would bring the society more into line with a, how a Catholic religious organization is run? Yeah. Uh, because, uh, I mean, many of the, most of the provisions, I think, in the new code of canon law just follow the provisions in the old code of canon law. And you never, the religious orders were not run with this, this sort of absolutism uh, from the top. I know I was a member of a religious order uh, that had pre-Vatican II constitutions. So uh, this, uh, it would radically change. It would uh, uh, radically stop. And the members of the organization would also acquire rights, which they don't have now. Well, although I suppose the question is, wouldn't it be possible that maybe just on paper they'd have to uh, line up, but things would still be run the same way in practice? Well, no, because if you have uh, if you have rights on a paper that the Vatican has approved, um, you know the the uh, priest, let us say, down in Kentucky, can um, uh, complain to the Vatican saying that they're not following the rules. I'm being treated right, right. unjustly. So uh, that's kind of how it, it, it would go. And you could not uh, enforce, as it were, a line of the society as they do now from the top down. Uh, that would be impossible because there's no such thing as the line of the Jesuit order or the, the position of the Jesuit order on this doctrinal issue. Father, unlike, unlike you or I, Nicholas is married, and I think he might have some obligations he has to get to, but I think he has a caller on who's asking the Rodney King question. Uh, uh, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. I, I do have, I, that, that's true, I do have to get going, so I'm just going to introduce our next caller, and then I'm going to have to uh, get out of here to uh, um, deal with my uh, uh, domestic duties here. But we, we've got John calling from Ohio, and he has a question about uh, kind of the uh, 
a recurring question, I suppose, uh, why the problems uh, of unity amongst traditional Catholics? Uh, and I'll let him ask the full question. Okay, hi, John. Okay, John, you're on. Yes, hello, Father. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Go right ahead. Oh, very good. Uh, well, it's an honor to speak with you. <coughs> oh, and I wanted to mention that I'm probably the only person in America, or perhaps anywhere, who agrees with you on Terry Schiavo. Well, you better not mention your last name. That's all I can say. <laughs> I was discreet <laughs> about that, yes. I don't yeah, avoid good. the hate, okay. outpouring of hatred that I saw you had endured. Um, to the question, though, um, and I think to be specific, you know, that was, that was a pretty good joke by Stephen there about uh, why can't we all just get along, right, was Rodney <laughs> King's question. Yes, of course. But to be more specific, you were a colleague with Bishop Williamson and Father Jenkins, right? You, you were all yeah. getting along at one point. You were all members of the society together. Uh, and yes, I think right. that the split has created weakness, which is being exploited. That's maybe mm -hmm. just my own view, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's weakness in the traditional movement, which is being exploited right now, like, you know, with mm -hmm. this uh, deal, which apparently, according to the news reports, is, is pretty much signed already. Sure. Um, and... It seems like it's been so many years now, 30 years almost, I guess, since like the nine left the society. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I just haven't seen any efforts to, you know, to uh, to fix that split. Like, well, instead of getting SSPX to to join uh, the, the conciliar Rome, mm -hmm. it seems like the the urgent issue is to reunify among the traditionalists. And mm -hmm. is it really true that are these issues really um, deal breakers? Mm -hmm. In terms of the you know the distinctions and the you know differences of opinion. Okay. Well, I've talked long enough. Why don't you go ahead? Well, that's a great question. Thank and, you for your question, uh, John. It, yeah, thanks a lot. It's it's and it's entirely understandable that people have a reaction like that. But the um, reason that there is uh, so much disagreement among the resistance, people who, uh, we say in the broader sense, who have nothing to do with the Vatican II religion, is uh, that the revolution came from the top down, uh, from uh, people who uh, did or, or putatively enjoyed authority in the Catholic Church. And when, as a result of that, the underlings, the, the priests and the bishops and the members of the laity, don't have authority over them. Uh, anyone with with the real authority that that comes from Jesus Christ, and this is sort of the glue, as it were, this authority and jurisdiction that um, holds the unity of the church together all the times, uh, all the time in terms of her doctrine and her discipline and her worship. So, the the, the pastors sort of being struck aren't uh, able to exercise their authority, so you have difficulty among the uh, members of the flock. Uh, it is uh, an unfortunate, but it's uh, a natural and understandable reaction if you look at history, because if you see uh, the effect of the, the Protestant revolt in England, where the, those faithful Catholics who remained really had no authority over them. Uh, the Pope was unable to exercise his authority in England. There was no one, there were no diocesan bishops. And human nature being what it is, they had disagreements over uh, a number of things, and the Jesuits were fighting with the diocesan priests and setting up rival mass centers. Um, you had the same thing in, in uh, uh, France in the order I belong to, the Cistercian order, 
um, for a hundred years the question of, of uh, abstinence from meat, and this was a hot issue. Uh, the king wouldn't let the pope exercise his authority in France, so you had these disagreements uh, between the two different factions. So it's an unfortunate thing, but because you don't have authority to settle it, at least you understand what the origin of it is. And uh, that, uh, so, uh, you know, in effect, one is not able to uh, settle these great issues in the long run without the intervention of authority. And, I think all I think all those points are well taken, Father. Um, we've got about nine minutes left in our show, and so I suppose this is a time where I kind of circle the wagons back and, and uh, remind listeners you've been, you're listening to Restoration Radio. Our guest today is Father Anthony Chicada, who's joining us from St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in uh, Westchester, Ohio. And we've been discussing... The sort of the long, the long answer to, you know, will the Society of St. Pius X uh, sign a deal um, with, uh, with Rome? Um, I'm going to revisit that question here in a moment. I do want to take a moment to plug Father's various sites. Um, for those of you who uh, are interested in reading some more, both of what Father said about the Society of St. Pius X and also liturgy, which is probably what he's known most for, other than being a, a wicked, evil gremlin, um, you can find, uh, he has a YouTube channel up now, youtubechannel.com forward slash work of human hands, and he's been posting podcasts for those who don't like reading, uh, or for those who like reading in like a visual um, uh, props. Uh, he's got uh, some YouTube videos up, basically summarizing each of his chapters from his 400-page book, Work of Human Hands, which has been very well received, even by those who are not inclined to like Father Chikata. Um, he also, for those of you who do like reading, uh, Philothea Press, that's P-H-I-L-O-T-H-E-A, press, dot, is that dot .com or dot .org, Father? Dot .com. Dot .com. Uh, you can go and buy Father's book or even read uh, excerpts uh, to practice your reading. Um, and uh, I think I think John will be happy with that plug there, Father. Be very happy. <laughs> and uh, so let's let's go back to that question because we've we've got we've got we still got a few more minutes left here in the show. Um, you think again that they're not likely. Well, let me let me contextualize this. We talked uh, off air about a quote that was in La Croix, which is the uh, French daily, basically quasi official Catholic newspaper in, in France, which is if the society does not sign now. They will never sign, and you agree mm-hmm. with that sentiment. Why? Well, I think there's a limit, uh, and I think that in in terms of the uh, Vatican, they're getting to a point where they figure that they're uh, they've done everything they possibly could do to try to get these people to sign up, and with. Um, the, with Benedict XVI, with his reputation, et cetera, as a conservative and, and trying to get this, this uh, a traditionalist group back, uh, I think that the general perception is uh, no one is going to be as interested in this question in the future as he is, that none of his successors are going to be really all that interested, uh, that this is something that, uh, that he has done. Uh, he's 85 now. He's going to die soon. And... Um, this opportunity is not going to come up again. So it's either sign now or uh, forever forget about it for a long time. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm reminded of a scene in the movie Beckett uh, in which uh, the cardinals are talking about not trying to outmaneuver each other. There's, you can't outmaneuver a Roman cardinal. 
Um, <laughs> if, we, if we think that Romans play politics much better than any of us poor laymen or certainly even heads of small religious congregations can imagine, is this not the logical consequence of the 2007 Motu? That if you wanted this, that you had to prepare the groundwork and show, look, hey, hey you can say the Mass. We're okay with it. Extraordinary form, fiddlebacks, new liturgical movement. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, 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 we're we gave opening. you everything. So five you years asked. later, you can harvest that fruit. Do you see that? Uh, they gave them everything that they asked for uh, up front in in the beginning, and um, the uh, the uh, Ratzinger slash conservative faction took a lot of heat for doing that from the old Vatican II Trotskyites. So um, uh, the the attitude. I think of the Vatican now is going to be we gave you everything, we made all of these offers, we gave you sufficient weasel words uh, in in uh, this this uh, preamble so you could get around your different difficulties with Vatican II. There's nothing more that we can do. That's what I think uh, the attitude is. So even though you believe that they're not going to sign, you do believe if they do sign, it will be now or never? Yes, Yes, because remember, they could continue the recognize and resist uh, that particular fantasy and the negotiation, uh, the idea of negotiations, the promise maybe we'll have future negotiations with the Pope, etc. They can spin that on for another 40 years. Um, And and that's not, um, you know, that's not uh, anti-society cynicism. That's just sort of a, a reading and interpretation of the past. And, and, and I think you know, Archbishop Lefebvre said once, our, our, uh, well, what's, what's our future? Our future is our past. Well, uh, that's the, uh, the, the uh, future, uh, if they don't sign, is more of the past. Yes. Well, and I think you're, you're on to something there, Father, about, you know, we are not into uh, anti-society um, uh, backbiting here, I think both you and I have been connected with the Society of St. Pius X at some point in our life, and Providence led us there for some good. Sure. So there's, yeah. there's a difference between, oh, the entire organization is bad and everyone is bad and all the faithful are idiots. There's, there's nothing of that. It's the question of, if you recognize this man as the Pope, then then it's about time. And if you sure. don't recognize this man as Pope, what are you doing going to Masses with the Society of St. Pius X? Yeah, it seems to make no sense. I mean, exactly, and it's it's tertium non There's no no really third position on that, as far as I'm concerned. Well, the society's occupied that third position for I think, as you say, long enough, and uh, and so we'll we'll see if it remains to uh, to be seen. I I think um, I might close on on this note again. um, We're we're limited on our time, but I, I. the mir- miracles of the internet. I-, I have never had a chance to meet Father Selway, but I watched one of his sermons here um, today, uh, being Sunday, and uh, he mm-hmm. had mentioned um, fifty years without a shepherd, and yep. and what that does. And I think, um, leaving aside the question instead of a contest, because again, that's not we we seem throughout the whole show to keep coming back to that question, because no Catholic can really escape that all of these issues come back to the problem of the Pope. Mm-hmm. But the sort of hopeful note to take is that Father Father Selway pointed out, God knew from all eternity that we would be born in this time period, and He chose mm-hmm. us for this time period for any number of reasons, not the least of which that He wanted us to cooperate with His grace to persevere through some pretty horrible times. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Well, uh, I mean, that is the um, 
uh, you know, the, that's the, the cross that we have, and that's the ticket to glory as well that uh, we have for keeping the faith and not becoming discouraged and passing the faith on to the next generation in this, this real, really terrible time of trial. So God nevertheless gives us the means in which to do that. Well, Father, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, we, uh, again, have uh, we've been listening to Restoration Radio. It was our second broadcast today. We had some technical difficulties, uh, but thank you, uh, thank you for bearing with them, all our various callers. And, um, again, uh, to learn more about Father Chikata and some of his, the work he's been doing, you can visit sgg.org, which is the, uh, the website of his um, the parish that he uh, helps, helps uh, take care of. Uh, philotheopress.com is where you can go to buy his book. Um, you can go to youtube.com forward slash work of human hands in order to uh, download some of his podcasts. And uh, shameless plugs for our own websites, uh, Nicholas Wander run Swords in Space, which is sort of a science fiction take on, uh, Catholic, on traditional Catholicism in the realm of, in sort of in the vein of Canticle of Leibowitz, those of you who are familiar mm-hmm. with that fantastic work. Uh, and of course, I, Stephen Heiner, am in charge of True Restoration, uh, which has lent its namesake to our radio show. Um, and for the, to the truly brave Stephen, you can send them to traditionalmass.org. Well, to only for read articles like to read. by Father Chicada. <laughs> that's, that's only for people who like to read, Father. But but yes, you're you're right. We can we can they can, they can go to traditionalmass.org and uh, and there's lots of great articles there. And again, dealing with the society, but a whole host of other issues, not the least of which I think our caller from Ohio had brought up. Why can't we all just got along? A father addressed this a long time ago. Um, we'll leave you with the uh, first strike. Thanks for listening. God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers.